Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me from Zoom, is Dr. Christy Kane. Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, We're going to talk about a book that um, Dr. Kane wrote. It's called Fractured Souls and Splintered Memories, Unlocking the Boxes of Trauma. Now, that is a great book title, and it just draws me to everything that's in this book. And as I've been visiting with Dr. Kane before we went live, I recognize the things that she's writing about and talking about, and her private clinical practice is helping um, a lot of people. I'll just read a little bit of a bio so you know more about um, Christy. Christy Kane holds a doctorate degree in clinical psychology and a master's degree in mental health counseling. She is a sought-after speaker and an expert in the field of mental health. Her work focuses on neurological trauma-related issues. She is an advisor to school and corporations across the country in the field of mental health. When not working to help others find hope and healing, she enjoys the outdoors, outdoors and time with her children. And so once again, welcome to the podcast. Um, Tell us about your, well, if if there's anything you want to just say in an introduction, I'll just turn it over to you, Christy. Okay, well, thank you. And I'm glad we're going to focus on the book. You know, trauma is an interesting buzzword in our communities right now, especially coming out of COVID as we're trying to return back to normal. Um, You know, I've been doing a lot of uh, national radio interviews, and it's been focused on trauma and how do people heal. And that's been a great topic for me with this book because the book is about healing. And it's really designed to give people a perspective of what takes place in the therapeutic office because sometimes that seems a mystery. And it also is one of those books that, you know, like it is about um, a person's individual journey to heal from trauma they experienced as a child. And I find some people go, well, you know, I didn't have any childhood trauma. That won't relate to me. And yet in reality, all of us in our lives have had trauma, right? And so it's really relatable to the process of healing and learning to be vulnerable so that we can heal. Vulnerability for so many is so scary, especially if they've had a failed marriage, a failed relationship, um, lost a child as far as like maybe not following the pathway that they'd hoped or struggling with their own testimony or struggling to learn how to connect. And yet through vulnerability has to come healing if we're willing to let it happen. I love that. Tell our listeners where they can get your book and um, just... So I understand and, and, it's, and, it's at um, Amazon, um, Costco, Cedar Fort, I think Siegel Book, Deseret Book, all of those places are carrying it, but they can order it online at Amazon. Tell us, our listeners, just a little bit of your work, and you're an active Latter-day Saint, just some of the things that you've done in this space um, for the church, if you want to share a little bit of your work there. You know, I've had the opportunity to do some writing for LDS Living on different topics. Um, I enjoyed speaking at BYU Women's Conference. They gave me a very interesting topic, which I'm actually talking on uh, Monday night, which is uh, teaching children healthy sexuality. So that's a very interesting topic. Um, I had the opportunity to meet with the Young Women's General Presidency, the Relief Society, and Primary General Presidency, talking about um, critical issues that 
adults and young people are facing in our world today and, and, and how can we be mindful of those things? Really, all of my work focus on, focuses from a, neural, a, a strong neurological foundation in how can we heal and how can we help individuals to feel accepted and to be able to resolve personal trauma so that it opens up those pathways for love and understanding. You know, trauma comes in lots of ways. Trauma comes from some major catastrophic event, a death of a loved one in a tragic accident. Trauma comes from recognizing that maybe you have same-sex attraction in a culture that isn't as accepting as it needs to be. Trauma can come from layered years and years of being told that you weren't good enough in a marriage or by a family. And that's what we call chronic trauma when it's happened over and over again. And so I think all of us in our lifetime are going to experience moments of trauma that create different ranges of impact, right? Um, some of it will not be long lasting, but momentary and others may take a long time to heal from, but I believe we can heal trauma at the right time, at the right place, with the right person in the appropriate perspective of understanding even that some trauma won't heal till the next life. And that we'll have to learn kind of more of a management and maintaining in this life. It's really helpful. Um, talk about why therapy is important. You know, it's funny you ask that because I have to admit <laughs> when I was getting my master's and my doctorate, uh, I didn't ever want to go to therapy. And I missed the small print that said that students completing their graduate degrees had to go to therapy themselves. And so the dean of the college called me and he said, hey, Christy, where's your hours of therapy? And I said, Dr. Beck, I've turned in my 900 hours. Dr. Burnham signed off on them. We're good to go. And he goes, no, 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 no your therapy. And I go, what are you talking about? And Dr. Beck goes, Christy, you had to see a therapist 12 times to graduate. And I'm like, I'm not crazy. I do not need to see a therapist. I am not going to talk to anybody. And it's so funny because Dr. Beck goes, oh, I knew this conversation was coming, Christy. And I go, what does that mean? And he goes, oh, I knew. I knew you weren't going to go. And I go, well, I didn't know I had to. And he goes, that's fine. He said, but if you don't go, you don't graduate. I was like, you're kidding. And he goes, no. I'm like, you can't do that. And he goes, yes, I can. It's part of the cohort. And you know what? It was the, one of the best experiences that I ever had in my life. Because even though I thought I didn't need to talk to anybody, it was interesting. There were things that I learned. There was new perspectives to think about things. And I even recognized that I did some things I didn't realize that I was doing. And so I think therapy, even if it's just to have someone hold up a mirror, you know, I think a therapist is kind of like a guide, a sage. They're not really there to tell us what to do. They're there to give us an opportunity to see pathways so that we can decide what's right for us. They're also there to sometimes counter our thinking errors and help us to look at things from a different perspective. I don't know anybody who can't benefit from that. They're also there to help us feel safe. You know, the one thing I love about therapy you can come into my office and you can tell me things. And because of confidentiality, no one else is going to know. And when you leave my office, you may never see me again. So you don't have to worry what I might think or not think. So you can be really raw and vulnerable in a therapist's office, knowing 
It's just between you and your therapist. I love that. And I've got a couple of follow-up questions. Talk, you've used the word vulnerability, which is a word that I didn't really use 10 years ago. And I've certainly, probably thanks to Dr. Brene Brown, have understood the importance of vulnerability. But just, I don't know if this is a guy thing for that guys are hard to be vulnerable, so I don't want to be that binary. But just kind of introduce vulnerability and how that's often the path to healing. Well, I guess if we were to talk about it from a religious perspective, vulnerability is the elimination of pride. Wow. You know, I don't, I don't know that Brene Brown would say it that way, but it's really allowing ourselves to get to a place of being teachable and willing to recognize that we can grow. I just did a little bit of an Instagram cast the other day where I said, I wish we'd stop using the word change because I think anytime somebody says, oh, you need to change, that's a negative platform. I think we need to use the word grow, empower, learn, deeper understanding, because all of those words are strengthening and allow us to see the good that can be obtained along with the good that's already had. So that journey of vulnerability is an opportunity to see ourselves as we really are and all of our potential. Oftentimes people think of vulnerability as a risk, as a negative, as I could get hurt. Sure, in vulnerability there can be pain, but pain and vulnerability is meant to bring growth, not to disable us. And so I think sometimes we look at it maybe in the wrong perspective. It's kind of like I do this, I say the same thing about, we use the terminology in the gospel that one should feel guilt instead of shame. And I've said so many times, guilt and shame are the same thing. We should feel remorse, but not guilt and not shame. Because remorse is the godly sorrow that empowers us to improve and to set pride aside and to accept the atonement into our lives and that forgiving process. So vulnerability allows forgiveness. Vulnerability allows for darkness to be brought into the light, especially if someone needs to talk about things that have happened to them that no one else knows. Vulnerability places it at the feet of our Savior in so many ways. I love that. Um... Talk about mental health. How can we talk about that in a more effective way? Mental health. I was just talking to a whole room of like 500 police officers and everyone had on a cowboy hat and a gun. That was a very interesting conference. Great men. And these are all tough guys, right? And so I explained to them, mental health is who we are. Mental health is who we are physically, emotionally, cognitively, and socially. Mental health is not a negative. Mental health issues are things like bipolar, anxiety, depression. So when we talk about mental health, we need to be talking from a positive perspective of what are you doing cognitively every day to improve your mental health? What are you doing socially? What are you doing physically? What are you doing emotionally? Because that is our mental health. God gave us the most amazing computer in the world and put it on top of our head. And we need to take care of it. We spend so much time dieting and physical exercise 
but we have to be mindful of the brain. That brain has to be taken care of. And that's our mental health, physical, social, emotional, and cognitive. So let's start talking about it. Let's start using more preventative processes. We're so good as a society to be this intervention, crisis. Everybody's mobilized. But yet the gospel has always taught the increments, the incremental processes to create the strength, right? What are you doing every single day? You know, I love the fact that there's research that shows the spirituality is so powerful for the brain. That human connection is so powerful for the brain. And the body and the soul are, are one. They're so unified that if you bless one, you bless the other. And so that's that talk about mental health. We need to help kids understand why they have to go outside and play. Because nature is beneficial for the brain. Playing outside is powerful. Get this, there's a research study that shows the ability to wait promotes brain growth. And we are the most impatient society ever living on the planet. Like if our, if our website won't load in a couple seconds, we're mad. We no longer have the patience we used to have. So that's what I mean, talking about mental health in a different way. Talk about it positively from those four perspectives. Will you list those four perspectives again, Christy? Social, emotional, cognitive, physical. And so if I understand mental, mental health is the umbrella, it's our whole, you know, it's our brain. Um, and all of those four are part of our mental health. So mental health and emotional health aren't synonyms in that sense. Mental health is the overall totality. And these are the four parts that make up mental health. Is Am I saying that yeah. correctly? Exactly. I mean... You know, the University of, University of Utah did that whole study on how spirituality impacts the brain. We have all these studies showing that physical exercise, oxygen infused to the brain is so beneficial for the brain. We know that when we touch and embrace, oxytocin is released in that social connection. And so that is our mental health. And then those four areas are where we need to focus each day. Um, talk about trauma. What is it? And just teach our listeners and me about trauma. Trauma is defined as any type of experience that is overwhelming and overstimulating to our brain. Our brain records all the events that we're engaged in every day. As a matter of fact, our brain thinks about 90,000 thoughts a day and is consistently forming synaptic connections. Like when you learn to play the piano, when you learn to speak Spanish, all of those are synaptic long-term memory connections. When we experience a traumatic event, it records in the brain differently than other events. Oftentimes it creates trapped emotions. It creates trapped memories. Sometimes trauma can be significant enough that it shuts down all of the brain processes, but the brain stem. Um, sometimes we can totally forget an event that happened that may come back up later in life. So trauma is really this overstimulating traumatic event that just overwhelms us. And that could be for a second, that can be for five minutes. And in some aspects, when we go back to it, it could be a lifetime, depending on how it impacts a person. Trauma has to be processed through the way I describe it. It's like those old wax records that get scratched. Trauma scratches the brain for lack of a better analysis. 
And so on a scratched record, every time you play the record, the needle goes to the scratch and kicks back. You never get to the end of the song. And so that pain and those difficult emotions stay trapped. And so therapy helps you play to the end of the record. It doesn't erase the memories. It doesn't make them go away, but it takes the pain and the darkness out. That's why I talk about bringing the darkness to the light and allowing it to heal. That record analogy is awesome. Thank you. That is the very best analogy I've ever heard to describe getting through trauma. I'm old enough to remember those records that get stuck there. <laughs> so yeah. I hope our younger listeners recognize that those records used to get stuck on the scratches. But talk about, um, and I realize this, you know, we can't give a full clinical session here, but just some overview of what um, a therapist will do to get um, a client through the scratches to hear the rest to the whole story and so they don't get stuck at that point. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is that therapy is relationship-based. You have to find someone you connect with. You know, Carl Rogers in the field of psychology talked about that client-therapist relationship, and he's right. I know that when I swallowed my pride after talking with Dr. Beck and agreed, and agreed to go visit with the therapist, she wasn't a member of our faith, Dr. Natalie Malovich, but she's one of the most amazing people I know. And there was just this wonderful connection between the two of us. And because I felt that she cared and because I knew that she respected my values and because I knew that she really, truly wanted me to see things differently. It was a phenomenal experience, the time that I spent in her office. So first is connection in that process. Second, there's different techniques that are used to address trauma. I like a lot of art therapy. So I'll have clients paint because sometimes we can emotionally express things in an artistic format that we can't put in words. I mean, it's kind of sad, but some of the greatest pieces of art came from tormented souls because, you know, whether it's Picasso or Van Gogh or Michelangelo, they were trying to express what they couldn't figure out how to put into words. So art therapy works. There's a new technique called EMDR which is designed to put the brain in a rhythmic pattern to allow it to play to the end of the record. We use cognitive behavioral therapy. I'll have individuals write letters, not for the intention of giving to anybody, but for the intention of self-expression and being able to really look at things. It depends on the client. Some techniques work for some clients. Some techniques don't work for certain clients. And so kind of as that wise sage with that connection, you're feeling the client out and allowing them to explore what will work for them to release those trapped memories. But most importantly, it's to feel the memories in a safe place so that you can release them. And knowing that the person that you've shared them with is going to sweep them away after you leave the office. Uh, talk about, I get lots of messages, um, sort of parents of LGBTQ children looking for a therapist, and I don't, I don't really know how to refer those because I just don't know for sure the right therapist for every situation. I don't have an insight into each therapist. So 
any just general principles to guide people that are looking for a therapist, um, maybe especially in this case, to work through their trauma? Because there's just lots of therapists and it's kind of like a new territory for a lot of people and they don't quite know where to start. You know, the hard part is it's like any profession. There may be a lot, but you want to make sure that you're going to the good one, right? There's a lot of mechanics, but some you wouldn't trust your car with, right? Right. And I think that's okay. I, I'm a business owner and I would say the same about business owners. So yeah. and some may feel that about me. So I think that's fine to sort of be acknowledge yeah. the reality of that. And so you need to do your research on the therapist you're going to go see. Um, ask your friends for recommendations. Um, when a client sits down with a therapist, they should be interviewing the therapist as much as the therapist is interviewing them. You know, like when a client sits across from me, I'm like, ask me, ask me anything you want to ask me. If you ask me something that I feel isn't, is not pertinent, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to decline from answering that, but ask me my perspective. Um, I'm going to ask a client a lot of questions. I've had a few people in my office in my lifetime that I knew I wasn't the right therapist for. I tell the clients who sit across from me, I am not going to be offended that if after this first interview, you go, man, I do not want to work with Dr. Kane because I want them to find that person that they can connect with. Know their background. Um, Ask them their approach. You know, what, what do you do as a therapist? How do you help heal? What background do you have in this particular area? When it comes to that LGBTQ, it's really important that parents, especially if the child is under 18, allows confidentiality in that relationship. Because like in the state of Utah, technically, parents can access information and I tell parents who bring their teenagers to see me, I want you to agree that they have confidentiality because if I'm going to help them, they need to feel like they can tell me anything. Now there's exceptions. If they're going to harm themselves, harm someone else or do something illegally, then obviously I'm going to tell, but kids need to feel like they can talk freely, especially if it's that process of seeking to understand themselves. That's why I love on Tuesday night, I'm going to talk about, helping children and, and talk about healthy sexualities because part of the problem right now in our society and in marriages is we haven't done a good job. And so we're, we're creating a lot of the issues that don't need to be in our world today because we haven't taught healthy sexuality, but sorry, I got off topic, but. Um, I agree by the way, with <laughs> we haven't yeah. taught healthy sexuality. Yeah. So it's really that interview process, you know, and ask, ask people, um, see if you can find things that they've written. See if you can find videos. I mean, not every therapist is as public as I am. You know, you can Google me and you'll find lots of things. And, and not every therapist is out there. And so it's really a good interview. Ask them all kinds of questions. You know, I ask all the clients who sit down in my office, do you want your faith to be part of your therapy? And I leave it open and they say yes or they say no. And then I respect those things. It's a really good answer. And um, I love what you said at the beginning before I asked that question. You need to have a connection with the therapist and recognize, I think, that that needs to be something that you'd need to give your permission yourself to withdraw from a therapist if you don't have that connection. And you've given people permission to do that, recognizing you don't connect with every potential um, client. And that's just the reality. And I think that's good. 
talk about, is it realistic that I, a person can go through life without trauma or I as a parent can protect my kids in a way that they will have no trauma in their life? Or is it a better approach to say trauma is part of mortality and I've got to develop the skills in myself and as a parent for my own kids to help them, you know, be able to work through trauma? Uh, I think trauma is a part of mortality. <laughs> I, don't I thought think you'd say single, that. <laughs> I don't think a single one of us are going to get through without it, whether it's a loss of a loved one, whether it's, a, you know, your first infatuation doesn't go well, um, whether it's failing a college course. And that's the thing about trauma. It's a wide range. I think one thing we have to help kids that we've done a poor job is we forgot to tell them about things that are part of life. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. It's so funny to me. People come into my office and they'll sit down and they'll say, hey, Dr. Kane, I have bipolar. And I'll be like, why did I bother go to school for all these years and have all these initials behind my name if you already know what you have? We don't usually walk into a doctor's office and say, I have cancer. We usually go in and tell them our symptoms and they run tests and come back and give us a diagnosis. We're talking about mental health today. 90% of our kids are running around saying they have anxiety and depression. But what's interesting is when they come into my office and I explain to them what the diagnosis really is, they go, I don't have that. And I go, no, but you have life. And in life is anxiety. And in life is trauma. And in life is depression. And we can help you manage that by understanding it is a part of life. And it doesn't need to be a diagnosis. And it doesn't necessarily need to be med medicated unless there is a clear chemical imbalance but we didn't do a good job at that we started talking about mental health so that it was like candy and now everybody has it well we know statistically only one out of every five individual is usually struggling with anxiety or depression and yet 90 percent of our kids in high school hallways think they have it right they have life trauma is a part of life and it can be a growth process it also can be debilitating as well depending on how we process it and depending on how we allow ourselves to heal. I think it's important for people to know that trauma also takes time to heal. I've had many clients in my lifetime, and you'll see this in the book. This particular client started therapy in, I think, her 20s and worked a little bit and then came back in her 40s. And so it just takes time when you're ready. You might be ready in your 20s for a small slice of the pie. And then in your 30s, and then in your 50s, and then maybe in your 80s. It just, it isn't a quick fix, but then life is not meant to be a quick fix. It's about the process of learning to grow and to become who we're supposed to be. Our traumas teach us. Our traumas provide deep empathy and sympathy for other people. And so although they're painful, in some aspects in life, they're very valuable. I love that. Um, I was thinking before we started, I was going to come back to something that I forgot. Sorry about that. But um, uh, uh, you did say um, there's some trauma that may not be resolved to the next life. Uh, oh. Just talk more about that idea. There are some abuses that have happened to some people when they were younger that have cut so deep in the neurological pathways and to the soul and to the spirit of that person 
that that healing will come in the next life. Um, we know there's some personality disorders created out of trauma that will not go away. Most personality disorders, we don't heal. We help with maintenance so that they can have as an effective life as possible. Now, when I say that, perhaps people in a gospel perspective might say, well, then how's that fair? And how is the atonement true? And I respond, we have to remember, and you know, I've had people say, you know, Heavenly Father said he wouldn't give me more than I was supposed to handle. But there are some things that we give ourselves that God never intended us for us to handle, such as substance abuse or different things. And there's some choices that people use their free agency that God never intended either. God does not make bad things happen to anyone. He's not that type of God. I agree. But he does give us the power. Even if that power is just to maintain until the healing can come in the next life. You know, I really like that. I just think it's the reality of mortality. And I get pretty tenderhearted when I think about some of the traumas you're talking about. And some of the vocabulary used cut so deep and are so painful um, that it's pragmatically just, you know, maintaining and doing the best you can as a therapist and the best that person. I think it's maybe okay for some listeners to feel permission that that may be almost more healing to know that I maybe never will completely heal and just be able to live with a new norm and the reality of their situation versus somehow if I only did 14 more things, I, this would completely leave. And I don't, neither of us want to take hope off the table of somebody that wants full healing. But I do, we, because of our understanding of the plan of salvation and the context of this life and the context of the plan of salvation can, can believe what you just said and that um, ultimate healing takes place. You know, I don't want to talk too much about me, but I remember giving a priesthood blessing to one of the YSAs, and I've mentioned this on the podcast, and he was in the military and had been involved in bombing the Taliban and knew that innocent life, quote-unquote, mothers and children had died because of his work, and his work was obviously authorized by the Army and was the right thing to do, but he just he couldn't reconcile that. And as I gave him a blessing, the thought, the words came to my mind, no one's eternal possibilities have changed because of what happened in more in Afghanistan. And I, there's something similar to what you just said is that even people that have had, and obviously people's mortal, mortal life changed significantly because of what happened in Afghanistan. Um, but I think maybe it's similar to what you're saying is that some trauma cuts so deep that it has changed permanently mortality, but it hasn't changed their eternal possibilities. And mm -hmm. And perhaps this mortal experience, it, it, their eternal possibilities are enhanced and their ability to do work in, in the eternal perspective that I don't fully understand. Um, right. talk, talk about um, the book is, and I don't know if we mentioned this, this isn't, this isn't your story. This is a client story. Is that correct? Yes, it's just true story of a client. Mm -hmm. um, talk about... Um, some of the people I visit with have had trauma related to church culture or church leader or church experience, and they have a deep testimony of the doctrine of our church and our restored gospel, but they have experiences that don't match 
and some that are even traumatic. And so it creates a challenge to sort of lean back into the church because that's sort of this, I mean, if your trauma, sometimes it's easier to lean back in the church if that's not the source of the trauma because it becomes a place of healing. But for some, it's sort of leaning back into the trauma and they want in some ways to do that, to be a way of healing. Any thoughts for those that are counseling those that are in that spot or individuals that have experienced, I'm going to call it church-generated pain or church-generated trauma? No, anytime we have a, a larger population of a particular culture, we're going to end up with cultural trauma. And that can also be in minority incidences where the culture isn't the majority as well. It really comes down to a perspective of recognizing that our anchor needs to be in the Savior Jesus Christ and his teachings, right? It's interesting that as a therapist, I deal with many individuals who, because of church leadership or different things posted on the internet or whatever who are struggling with their testimony or struggling to, you know, believe in the things that they used to believe on because they've been offended or they've been hurt. Men will always make mistakes and women will always make mistakes. We're human. And I think most people are striving to do their best, even though Sometimes their best can be very hurtful to others. So one is to recognize usually there is no malice in the offense that happens. Now, occasionally there can be. I always tell people take no offense when no offense was intended, right? But then it comes down to that vulnerability again of our own healing, because as long as we hold to whatever the offense was, we impact our own ability to heal. Even if it's not something that happened because of a religious leader or a religious culture, let's say it's the abuser. Part of healing is the process of forgiveness. That doesn't mean forget. That doesn't mean go back into the lion's den, but it means allowing judgment to stand where it needs to stand so that you can move forward and grow. And that's what I say to people in this culture. Bishops are going to make mistakes, take presence. Trust me. I mean, I've sat in my office as a counselor sometimes, and I've had members tell me what bishops have done. And I just went, oh, boy. <laughs> like, does the bishop have any idea the damage that they've just caused? Yeah. And that's the point. They usually don't. And, you know, some bishops are engineers, and they come at it from an engineer perspective. And some bishops are lawyers. And, you know, whether we like it or not, all of us, our careers, our teachings come into our counseling. And so it's just important for that recognition of people who are going to make mistakes. And in mistakes, we can get hurt. But then we have also that great power to let go and to, to find our safety and our ability to move forward. That's a very good segment. I like your thought about there's no malice. That doesn't take away the pain, doesn't take away the trauma, but I think it helps get past the scratch in the record if you recognize that there was no malice intended. Uh, talk about, um, you know, I've been a previous ecclesiastical leader um, 
And sometimes as I was listening to a YSA, I didn't quite know where um, therapy started and ecclesiastical um, help ended. And, you know, if I was facing a spiritual issue that needed to be solved through spiritual tools or a mental health issue that needed to be solved through very different tools, any guidance to parents, to people, to ecclesiastical Alaska leaders, just principles to help them guide that space? That's a great question. I actually wrote an article in LDS Living on that particular topic of, you know, bishops are to guide, direct, and shepherd. But when it comes to relationship issues, when it comes to mental health issues, depression, anxiety, bipolar, borderline, narcissist, that all needs to go to a mental health professional. So I think when it's a chronic process, like if you're meeting with a person week after week after week, I think it's time a mental health professional comes into play, even on the spiritual sides. But, you know, that, that, that wisdom is to guide and direct them to get the assistance they need. And I think that's where priesthood leaders need to set is to say, okay, I can tell there's a problem here. So my role is to help you get the services and the assistance that you need. If it's a question of testimony, if it's a question of understanding prayer or doctrine, that stands within that, you know, that priesthood leadership. But if it's a question of life issues and things that are impacting their ability to function, then that plays in that mental health area. I like that. And I recognize that perhaps I have a bias where I'll go to my typical toolbox to solve things. And if it's a mental health issue, I need to pause because um, I may add to somebody's burden if I'm dealing with a mental health issue and I go to my usual toolbox that it might I might use to build their testimony or to increase their faith or to give them a better doctrinal foundation, just the more read, it may just add to their burden because they may be doing a great job of that already. And well, it may be dismissive of the complexity of their situation or the path to healing. I think probably one of the biggest risks for bishops and stake presidents is when oftentimes there's a, an, a narcissist and a narcissist is a very interesting personality that sometimes the lay people are not trained to recognize. And a narcissist can appear to be that perfect priesthood holder or that perfect Relief Society sister and have all the right answers. And so sometimes where I see difficulty is when bishops don't understand that that person who appears to be doing everything that they're supposed to is playing that perfect game because they're a narcissist. You know, they're the ones that will come in and say, oh, I understand I could be better. And, and I know that, you know, I need to improve and, and they give all the right answers. And then many times the bishops, because they're striving to do the best they can, will get caught in that trap of believing that person is really doing everything they need to be and not understanding that at home, that person's a nightmare. And so there's, that's why I think it needs to be so careful that a bishop and a release study presence and stake presidents if they sense it's a mental health issue, they need to have a mental health practitioner involved. And not all mental health practitioners are even skilled in recognizing some of those personality disorders. Will you just describe a narcissist? I think you did a pretty good job. But what's a clinical definition of a narcissist? 
That's a word I can't spell, listeners. I'm a terrible speller, <laughs> but go for it. You don't have to spell it. Give us the definition. <laughs> They're really individuals that don't have a center core. They really have no self-esteem. And so they can never be wrong. They always have to be seen as the life of the party, the perfect person. They will play. They'll go out of their way to be seen as the perfect neighbor, everything publicly. And if they start to feel like their image is cracking, it often creates drama and anger and sometimes violence to try to heal the crack. I define them as kind of those eggs where we blow the yolk out and it's just a hollow shell. Narcissists, their shell is so fragile and they spend a lot of time making that shell look perfect. And if it ever cracks, usually severe drama and anger can come out of that because they just, they're not self-secure. So they regulate by the way everybody sees them. And that's so important to them. That may be helpful for listeners that are dating somebody that, you know, I think some of the yellow flags you just shared might help people in relationships to understand the core of that and just to get further light and understanding, especially if you're in a dating relationship, potentially with somebody that Dr. Kane um, described. Any advice to somebody who's dating and may feel this is actually describing the person they're in a relationship with? You know, I tell people who date, if the person is too good to be true, they're probably <laughs> too good to be true. Like, you know, if it's that perfect person that says all the right things, shows up, brings the flowers, brings the candy, everything seems to be absolutely perfect, then it's not perfect. And you need to date a person long enough to truly see how they really are. You've got to see them in all, all aspects because usually when you end up dating a narcissist long enough you'll see their true colors but like i said if it's too good to be true it's probably too good to be true and i would assume a narcissist would not likely to be vulnerable and sort of say these are the things going on in my life and this is what i'm working on or these are some of my setbacks and so i assume this vulnerability you're talking about would be something a narcissist unless he or she is particularly manipulative would not usually do. Is that correct or not correct? Yes. Yes, that is correct. Um, we haven't talked for a long time, listeners, about scrupulosity. We did a bunch of podcasts on that about a year ago. We have a son that um, had undiagnosed scrupulosity on his mission, and that's spiritual OCD where he just kept confessing stuff that needed to be didn't need to be confessed. It's sort of like thinking your hands are dirty and washing your hands. And I recognize that the, that actually confessing reinforces the cycle. Um, so uh, as I've looked back, and maybe you can talk about this, I recognize as a YSA bishop, I had some YSAs that what was really going on, it was their mental health. They really, even though I looked at it as just, you know, I was helping them repent, I was actually doing a disservice because what was going on here was scrupulosity and then in a whole different path to healing. At least that's the way I understand right. it. Do you want to talk if anybody of our listeners haven't heard of scrupulosity before? So that's where you have this overzealous religious perspective of perfectionism and you're you're almost fixated on trying to be that most perfect saint 
and and you can you have struggle with self forgiveness. You struggle with recognizing that you've repented enough. As a matter of fact, oftentimes they'll repent of the same thing over and over enough because they haven't been punished enough. They struggle with forgiving. Sometimes they struggle because they aren't a bishop by the time they're twenty three or a Relief Society president at twenty one. It's really this unrealistic perspective of righteousness that nobody can obtain. And they're constantly feeling like they're never enough within their spiritual perspectives. So that's kind of that scrupulosity. And so um, treating that is, is, I mean, it's almost like a narcissism within the spirituality process because they want to be perfect on earth, but they also want to know that they're advancing and increasing and, and being recognized for all of that religious stuff. And so it's, it's a difficult process and that treatment modality is usually addressing trauma because it probably comes out of some type of trauma in their childhood and now they're trying to prove that they can be perfect enough so i just encourage parents and um, priesthood leaders and even individuals to be aware of scrupulosity it's just a unique um, vein of emotional health that is a whole different path to healing and you can mm-hmm. scroll back and look at some of those podcasts. Dr. Deborah McClendon, we've done a bunch with Dr. McClendon on that. Um, talk about, I have another question I want to ask you about um, how can we help others to heal? The best thing we can do is to listen and to guide and direct them towards those who can professionally help if the healing is beyond just being a friend. All of us need someone. And that's one thing I loved about in this book. Um, This particular client had a friend. And after every therapy session, she called her friend. And when, you know, therapists aren't available 24-7, right? She would have that friend to talk to when she wasn't necessarily in the therapeutic office. And so we don't have to have answers. We don't have to try to fix. And we need to just listen with no judgment. I think sometimes in the LDS culture, in an attempt to help and from a desire to help, we sometimes say things that can create more harm. You know, my, my, I'll give you an example in the sense like my daughter, they told her she'd never have children. And so, so many times within the culture of the faith was, so when are you going to have children or don't you want to have children? And sometimes in our culture, we need to expand our questions. So what do you like to do for art? Not how many children do you have or why aren't you married? Tell me about your hobbies. Tell me the favorite book that you read. Tell me the last movie you went to. There's ways to ask questions that don't create pain. And and we need to be better at that in, in our society in general. And then just listening. I mean, many times just as a therapist, I will ask questions just for the purpose to allow more talking so that I can listen and strive to understand. You know, I've never been to a training meeting teaching me how to listen. <laughs> I wrote that in my my book, um, and I've recognized, and I've heard some people say, well, I'm just not a good listener. And I don't claim to be a great listener or have that figured out, but I've really tried to work on that. What would you what advice would you give or tips to somebody that's saying, I actually, I agree with what you just said. I, I want to be a better listener. How do I do that? 
have two ears and one mouth, right? <laughs> and sometimes we act like we have two mouths and one ear. So many times it's just a simple nod of the head. It's just learning to be quiet. Silence is a very powerful tool, but so many times we're uncomfortable with silence in the listening process, so we'll jump in. And yet I'll set many minutes in my therapy office and just wait. And eventually the person will begin to tell me what they need to tell me. So silence is beneficial in listening and allowing time for a person to find the words. And then always asking open questions like, can you help me understand that better? What did you mean by this? Is there a way that I can help? Without saying, oh, you should do this, or have you tried this? Or That's not listening. Listening is allowing a person to dive deeper into the communication process they want to bring forward. I love that idea of being silent mm -hmm. and giving people space to find the words and just that you're a safe person as you describe that. I feel safe just opening up to you as you talk like that. And I recognize you're not shifting the discussion to your story. If someone opens up about something, you don't use that as a pivot to then talk about your experience with that. And obviously as a therapist, you're trained to do that, but I think we can all do that and learn to um, to be the sort of person that's described in this book, this friend. I've always, you know, I've said this in the past, listeners, I've always felt home teaching. We've renamed that program, but after a while, I felt like we ought to rename that program before it got renamed to home listening because I felt right. like I did the best visits when I actually didn't say much. And when I just, instead of being the the grand teacher teaching the latest doctrine. I love our doctrine when I actually just went into those homes and just listened and sometimes said very little and didn't leave a message. Um, so any, um, I'd love to just give you any, any time for any concluding thoughts. I guess my concluding thoughts were a, buy my book, right? Cause I That's, think it's a great book. And I a great agree. Story. And, um, but most importantly, I guess my concluding thought is all of us need time and space to heal. Don't be afraid to allow that process. Many times we justify not now or I'm too busy. But I think in the process of becoming whom we want to be, giving ourselves room to heal is powerful. And will you spell your name? Because Christy Kane could be spelled a few different ways. And then just close with the name of your book. So Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-Y-K-A-N-E. And the book is Fractured Souls, Splintered Memories, Unlocking the Boxes of Trauma. And my website is 360kane.com. So they can, or they can do drchristykane.com, but it's just DR. That's great. So Dr. Kane, thank you for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Mm -hmm.